up to The sky is so blue on clouds You drift away Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to Follow Dreams and Shooting Stars An original song by Andrew McManus A native of Northern Ireland Now living in Cleveland Andrew is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We can tell you a little bit more about him and let you hear the entire song. But right now, stoke that campfire. We've got a new Ohio mystery to share. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, whose journalism career included some 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. I tell you, Steve, this year has been a true crime landmark year in Ohio. In the last few months, advances in DNA technology has identified at least three serial killers responsible for dozens of unsolved murders that stretch back decades. Samuel Little, a Lorraine native, has confessed to strangling more than 90 women since the 1970s. Sam Legg, a truck driver from Medina County, was arrested this year for a 1997 rape, but authorities said DNA has tied him to at least four slayings. As of right now, he's been deemed incompetent to stand trial. And Gus Seferis, an Akron native who last year was found not guilty in a Licking County murder, is facing charges in two more murders from the 1970s. Today, I want to tell you about Gus Seferis, a story beyond shocking, because he was identified time and again over 50 years in a series of rapes, torture, and murder, but the justice system just would not hold on to him. Gustav Seferis is 75 years old, and he's sitting in jail under a $5 million bond. He was arrested in September after authorities announced they have new evidence connecting him to the 1970 murder of Karen Benson Akron and the 1975 murder of Loretta Jean Davis of Brimfield Township in Portage County. Akron Beacon Journal reporters Amanda Garrett and Stephanie Warsmith recently pieced together the story of Zaveris' life and found so many public warnings that should have ended his reign of terror before it ever truly got started. He was born in 1944, growing up in Akron's Goodyear Heights neighborhood, the oldest of two children. His parents operated Zaveris' restaurant at the corner of South Arlington and Waterloo Road a 24-hour steak-and-eggs kind of place, frequented by factory workers, cops, and the graveyard shift. He went to East High School and then attended the University of Akron for a spell before entering the Army during the Vietnam War in 1965, serving his time with the 82nd Airborne Division. Then Zephyrus returned to Akron, where he began his criminal career in May of 1969. His first known victim was a 20-year-old woman from Green Township, now the city of Green, that'd gone on a date. He got fresh. She said no. So he beat her up and attempted to rape her. Zephyrus was permitted to plead down to a lesser charge in that case, 
he received probation for two years. A few months later, in April of 1970, police found a woman's body face down in southeast Talmadge off Indian Hills Road, where the new Talmadge Woods allotment was being built. She had been stabbed several times in the chest and left discarded along a curb. She wore an Akron Central High School class ring with the engraved initials KLB, and that's how police figured out her identity. Her name was Karen Louise Bentz. Karen was 18 years old, a pretty blonde, and the mother of a three-year-old daughter. Her parents looked after the little girl while Karen worked 11-hour days between two jobs, waitressing at the Red Barn and clerking at Lawson's. Two businesses, by the way, that no longer exist. The night before she was found, she'd gone to visit her daughter and pick up a fresh uniform that her mom had washed and pressed. Then she left her parents' home and started walking back to her own apartment four blocks away. It was 11.15 p.m. She never made it home. She was found six miles away by a motorist who saw her body in the street. There were few clues in this case. Police saw tire marks where they believed someone had pulled over to dump her body. She was fully clothed, and the coroner determined she had not been sexually molested. But other clothes she had been carrying, including a uniform and penny loafers, were found half a mile away on East Avenue, as if they had been tossed from a moving car. This case grew cold fast. Meanwhile, Zephyrus took a job in downtown Akron at a job training center in Cascade Plaza. Like most of his jobs, this one wouldn't last long. He soon married and moved to Huntington, West Virginia. And that's where he was in January of 1972 when a woman called police to report she'd been attacked. The 22-year-old said she was driving home at 3 in the morning when another car rear-ended her. When she got out of the car to exchange information, the man pulled a knife, forced her to the floor of his car, then drove her to another location. There, he raped and tortured her for two hours. Police tracked the car and found Zephyrus. He was arrested, charged, and went to trial, but a jury deadlocked on the verdict. The judge declared a mistrial, and he was never retried. Two years later, Zavaris's wife filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery, and Zavaris returned to Akron, taking a job as a car salesman. In May of 1975, Cuyahoga Falls police were called to Manor's Restaurant at Front Street and Hudson Drive, where a 20-year-old woman said she had just jumped out of Zavaris's Pontiac Le Mans after being raped. Zavaris told police they had been seeing each other and just had a lover's quarrel. But the woman said they had just met that day when he pulled up to her in his car. He took her to a gravel pit on Home Avenue in Akron, choked her into unconsciousness, and when she woke up, she found him making small cuts to her stomach with a knife. For reasons that aren't explained in any public record, Zephyrus was not even charged in that case. That left him free four months later, in September of 1975, when another body was left on a local street. Loretta Jean Davis was 21 years old and lived with her parents on Old Forge Road in Brimfield Township. 
She was tall, nearly six feet, with soft mint green eyes and light brown hair cut in a shag. She liked to dance, had trophies for baton twirling, entered her quarter horse patty in show competitions, and loved to listen to blues and rock and roll. She worked for her mom, who had a data processing business, and talked of wanting to study business at Kent State. Friends and family knew her to be easygoing, but impulsive, someone who often did things on the spur of the moment, so it didn't seem all that out of place when she returned home from a Friday night date just after midnight and decided to head back out again to get something to eat. She left a note for her parents that she'd be back shortly, though she didn't specify where she was going. Loretta didn't return. She was found the next day on Congress Lake Road in Suffield Township by a woman who had stepped out of her house to retrieve her Sunday newspaper. She had been stabbed twice in the chest. Police found her green and white Plymouth Duster parked several miles away in front of a Talmadge Auto Parts store on Southeast Avenue. They said someone had seen Loretta sitting in that parking lot at 2.30 in the morning, but in a 1975 silver-colored Chrysler Cordoba. In a story this year by the Record Courier in Kent, one of the Portage County Sheriff investigators in that case revealed that Seferis was identified as a person of interest. Retired Detective Lieutenant Ron Snyder said at the morgue, a tiny particle was found on her clothing that pointed to the restaurant that Seferis' parents owned and given Seferis' record, made him suspect. It has not been revealed what the evidence was, but Snyder said at the time, it just wasn't strong enough to grab Seferis. He said Loretta Davis's family was pressuring the ported sheriff to bring someone in, and Sheriff J.D. Wilkins was facing an election in 1976 and desperately wanted to solve the case. He pressured detectives to make an arrest, but they ultimately prevailed, convincing him they didn't have enough to take the case to trial. And so, Zafaris remained free. By now, he was managing his parents' restaurant. A few months later, he struck again. In September of 1976, he met a 28-year-old Kaga Falls woman at the Dry Dock restaurant in Fairlawn, and the two talked several times over the next couple of weeks. One night in October, Zaveris called the woman and asked if he could visit her at her Portage Trail apartment. She said no, but Zaveris showed up anyway. She let him inside, but after 20 minutes asked him to leave so she could go to bed. Not one to take no for an answer, Zaveris grabbed her by the neck, pulled a steak knife out, raped her, then lingered in her apartment smoking cigarettes, talking about how he'd like to see her again. Then he left. In investigating that case, police learned of another attack. A woman who was nine months pregnant had filed a report saying Zafaris had raped her. Anyway, Zafaris did stand trial in the rape of that Kaga Falls woman, and he was found guilty. The judge sentenced him to 15 to 60 years in prison. He served 13. You gotta be kidding me. In 1990, the parole board let him go. By now, Zafaris' parents' restaurant was closed, and his sister had moved to Columbus, and that's where Zafaris settled when he was released from prison. The year after he was paroled, 
on August 12, 1991, the body of Benita Parker was discovered by a motorist traveling on a rural road in Licking County. The 21-year-old woman lived in Columbus and was a sex worker. She had been stabbed a single time in the heart, then apparently driven to Licking County, pushed from a car, and left on the road. There was no identification on her, but her family recognized a photo of her that was broadcast on a Columbus television station. Just 18 days later, while police are still investigating the Benita Parker murder, they get a call from neighbors reporting that a naked and bloody woman outside their home is screaming and a naked and bloody man is tussling with her and trying to force her back inside his home. Police responded to the call, which led them to the home of Zavaris's sister in the Columbus suburb of Genoa Township. She and her husband were away on vacation, and Zafaris was staying at their house. The woman neighbors heard screaming was bleeding from stab wounds to her breast, arms, and back. She would need a transfusion to save her life. She told police she met Zafaris the night before when he stopped her on the street near the Ohio State University and asked if she wanted a party. She got into his car and dozed off as he drove. And when she woke, she was at the Genoa Township home where he raped and strangled her. Police said they tried repeatedly to talk to the woman, but she wouldn't cooperate. So they didn't bother to seek any charges against Zafaris. Still, the incident was enough to warrant revoking Seferis's parole, and he went back to prison. And that's where he was until September 2000, when he was released again, far short of the sentence of up to 60 years he had originally been given. In the years that followed, he spent some time in Cincinnati and then in Stark County, where he worked at the Ponderosa Steakhouse. There, female employees would recall that he made them so uncomfortable they would walk each other to their cars. And then, it seemed finally Zavaris's career might be over. In 2015, 24 years after the body of Benita Parker was found in Licking County, DNA technology had finally improved to the point that Zavaris could be tied to material taken from beneath Parker's fingernails as well as on her pantyhose and underwear. Police wouldn't arrest Zavaris for another year or so, but finally he went to trial in 2018. It took the jury all of 45 minutes to set him free. Zavaris was returned to Stark County. And that's where he was a few months later when authorities announced they had evidence that now matched him to the 1970 murder of Karen Bentz and that 1975 murder of Loretta Jean Davis. Let's hear tonight from our armchair detective. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So tonight with us, we have Dolores Jeriga from New Franklin. Hi, Dolores. Hi. 
Hey, would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm Dolores Chiriga. I live in New Franklin with my husband. We're owners of Stewart Pest Control and Mosquito Control, and I'm on the board of directors for Barberton Area Community Ministries and also with the South Summit Chamber. And I also um, do some work for victim assistance, you know, interested in their human trafficking aspect of it. And, and my background has been in criminal justice field. Well, well, thank you for your volunteer service. Thank That's you. wonderful. You know, I, we have you on here because you actually knew one of these victims. Yes. Uh, Loretta Jean Davis was a classmate of yours. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Loretta and what you remember? Loretta went to Field High School in St. Same school that I went to. She was two years behind my class. I was graduating in 71 and she was in 73. And in the um, mid to late 60s, we were part of a baton group corps out in Brimfield called uh, the Twirlinettes. And of course, her, she also went by Jeannie. That's how we knew her too. I, you know, I wasn't close, real close with her, sure. but just as, as, as far as the baton group, you know, we knew of each other and the families, the parents would take us, you know, to different places that we were with our group and stuff. So, and her mom was very active with us. And Do you remember when this happened? I was still living at home and I remember hearing about it and a friend of mine called and she said, did you hear what happened to Jeannie? And I says, I, I couldn't fathom, you know, that this was a girl in our, our, um, area, you know, where we grew up at, out Brimfield, and back then, Brimfield was mostly farm country. It's changed a lot through the years, but it was farm country, small town, everybody knew each other, and we were just shocked when that happened. Then, you know, I was listening to the case following, and then it just died. That was it. We didn't hear any more about it, and it was just not mentioned. It, it did disappear very quickly. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing my research, there are anniversary stories, and, you know, uh, unsolved homicides get revi- revisited time and again, and this one did not. No. I was shocked yeah. how how infrequently it came up in the media right. after it had happened. Right. You know, how did that affect you, you know, as, as a young woman, knowing somebody who also was a young woman that that had happened to? Did it change you in any way? Did it um, change your behaviors? Um, at that time, I was pretty active with the victim assistance program. I was doing a lot of volunteer work, so I was aware of things that happened to people. And But still, coming from my small hometown it was um it was it was it was shocking and you just didn't hear of things like that back then one of my best friends from high school her family lived Loretta grew up on Old Forge Road which runs off of 43 and her my uh, best friend's family had lived right there on the corner, 43 and Old Forge. And they were a family that just never locked the doors and come in all hours of night. Her parents, after that, just everything changed. They locked the doors. You know, you just kind of were made aware of, wow, this, this could happen. That's all it takes. Yeah, that's all it takes, yeah. Now, Dolores, I know you have a very interesting story about somebody else you knew that almost became... Uh, Gus Seferis' victim. Yeah. Tell us about that. 
this all came about, it was in April of this past year, there was four of us that got together and went, ironically, to a murder mystery. One of the girls that happened to be with us that night, he may have been the guy that abducted me that night, kidnapped me. So she went on to say she was at a gas station that was off of uh, Route 43 in Uniontown. And what year would this have been? This would have been December of, let me see, 1974. And so she was at the gas station and... She she said it was late at night. It was dark late at night. So she paid, went to get in her car, and this guy jumped in the car next to her and pulled the knife. So he told her to drive, and she said it was just a few miles away. It was they were in the North Canton area, and he pull, had her pull into this farmhouse that was vacant at the time. And he took her through the back door, and she said she remembers walking through the living room, and then the kitchen was like a galley kitchen. And right there, there was a door, and you could see down, she looked like it appeared to be a root cellar. And he was leading her to that area, and she thought, oh my God, he gets me, he's going to murder me with this knife. And she said she just doesn't remember, it was like a blank, she just remembers just pushing him and running and she still had the keys to her car because she was driving and she ran and jumped in her car she said she fishtailed out she didn't know if he was behind her if there was a, maybe another car in the background she just took off in a panic and she never reported it nothing she was always been fearful you know if she would report it whether they'd retaliate she didn't know she's seen this story and everything kind of matched up so she um, she went back and found this farmhouse that this happened to. She remembered the area and found the farmhouse and stuff. And she contacted Chief, or she sent a memo over to Chief Williams from Talmadge Police and gave him a little bit of the story, a little bit of her story. Well, he called her, and he, she gave him all the information. And he... And that um, was just this year? Yeah. Right after, when all that story come out, she contacted him. And she didn't have, uh, she didn't think she could identify no. him. No. She said it was dark. She really couldn't see him that well because, you know, you're out in Uniontown. It's pretty remote out there, especially at that time. She remembers he had, his pants were like the houndstooth pants he yeah. was wearing. Yeah. And, you know, his knife and he clasped it between his hands hands on and then his knees and that's way you know he would ride in the car and he had dark you know it, it was just dark so she was she said she's totally unable to identify him but what she spoke to chief williams about was if they can research a farmhouse could have belonged to a family member or why would he you know they've taken her there right obviously he was prepared yeah. to know that that yeah. he could use that spot yeah that is just so chilling. Yeah. Well, I did hear from another listener who said uh, after he had been arrested, she told me that she had a 21-year-old daughter who was living in the apartment directly above him at one point, and that the neighbors had told her that that guy kept inquiring about her, which really disturbed her. I mean, she really fit his M.O. Yeah. Another close call. Yeah. There are two mysteries here for me. One mystery is who, what other victims are out yes, there. Exactly. Obviously, this guy was was very prolific. Right. 
And the biggest mystery to me is, how was this guy in a position to keep doing this? Exactly. How did he not get put away and the key thrown out? Well, I believe he was up for a rape charge. Was that in West Virginia or somewhere? And because of the woman's background, she had evidently some kind of a shady past and stuff. They used that against her in court, and the jury found him not guilty, and he walked. I wonder if this is also in some way indicative of the way attacks against women were treated Yes, in the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s. Like, it was not as big of a deal. Right, and if you had anything, I worked a lot, example, with uh, rape victims, a victim assistance. And I remember I went to see the prosecutor at Akron, and, and he wouldn't know what was in her background. And that's just the way they were treated, you know. And you know then. what? Many of his victims, they didn't have anything in their back. He, like you said, right. you know, he kidnapped that one woman from a gas station. Yeah. Uh, Loretta, she just went out to get a, a hamburger somewhere. And she was a shy girl. She was a quiet girl. And from what I understand, she she had a boyfriend. And, of course, he was interviewed and, and released. But she was a very quiet girl. Probably, you know, I mean, an, a naive girl. She grew up in Brentfield. She was just... Right. You know, yeah, so I, it, it just seems to be... I don't, I don't know how to explain mm-hmm. the lack of interest in just nailing this guy to the right. wall and keeping him somewhere. I mean, that one case where he was given up to 60 years, from yeah. 15 to 60 years, yeah. he was let out before 15 years. Right. And then when he attacked another woman, they stuck him back in prison, and he was still decades short of 60 years. Right. How could a judge not be looking at that background and saying, this guy cannot be let loose? He's obviously a complete psychopath with no filter, no ability to stop himself. I'm just amazed at how many victims there were. And we knew. We knew. We could track this guy. And, you know, not for the DNA and stuff now, this still would have been an unsolved case. It's... It's remarkable what they could find now, you know. So who knows? I mean, there could be many that they'll be able to relate back, you know, through the DNA. Yeah, I'm not sure we're done hearing from this guy because I I think there are more cases. I I do too. And probably a lot of close calls. Yes, I have to agree on that. Well, Dolores, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight. And wow, what an interesting story you added to this. Yeah, so, okay, thank you. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.
Well, that's it for tonight, campers, for photos, clippings, links, and more. For this and every episode, visit our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, how about a little more on our Ohio-featured musical artist, Paula? Yes, Andrew McManus is a native of Northern Ireland who grew up influenced by local myths and legends of Irish literature. He once performed in pubs and coffee shops throughout that island, but now we've got him, and he's got a very dedicated following in Northeast Ohio. You can follow him on Facebook or check out his website, www.amcmanusmusic.com. Andrew is working on a new album, and we'll feature him again when he gets that done. In the meantime, here's a wonderful song from a previous album. We played a clip of Follow Dreams and Shooting Stars at the top of the podcast. We're going to play the whole song for you now. So sit back, enjoy this now Ohio talent, and we'll meet you back here next week for a new Ohio mystery.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.